Bibles now, if you would please, and if you'll open them to Revelation chapter 11. This evening we're continuing our study in this 11th chapter, which you remember is a parenthetical section of this book. This is a pause that comes between the 6th and the 7th trumpet judgments. Remember this, that Revelation follows a pattern. There are seven seals that are on redemption scroll, and as those are opened by Christ, between the 6th and the 7th seals there is a short interlude. There are seven trumpet judgments that are sounded by seven angels, and between the 6th and the 7th trumpets, there is also a short interlude, and that's the pause that we're in right now between those 6th and 7th trumpets. Then when we get a little bit later on, we'll come to the seven vile judgments, and there are also, uh, there's also a pause uh, between those two, the 6th and the 7th, and that just follows the pattern that we find in Revelation. And so we're in this parenthetical section, a pause in, in the narrative here that began with chapter 10, goes all the way through chapter 10, into chapter 11, down to uh, verse number 15, and that's where we'll come to the sounding of the seventh trumpet. I believe that this particular interlude that we're reading about here is one of the most fascinating that we find in the entire book. Now, there are many things that we've, got, we've yet to cover as we go through Revelation, but I don't know of anything that really would captivate our attention in a greater way than what we find right here in verses 3 through 13. This is a very brief story of two potent preachers, two powerful preachers that come and preach the gospel in a mighty way while standing in the midst of very hostile enemy territory. Uh, These are two witnesses that are two men that are like God's powerful prophets of the past. In fact, there are many Bible expositors who write on this section who believe that these could possibly be two men who uh, come back from the Old Testament period and they preach the gospel during this time of the Great Tribulation. And if that's true, it just adds to the mystique of these men, and it's one thing that we haven't yet seen as we read the Word of God But that really doesn't surprise us a whole lot because we've seen a lot of oddities and we'll see many more as we go through this this study in Revelation. Tonight I'm preaching a sermon about these two potent preachers. This is part number one of the sermon. I I think we're up to four parts on this and even though it's a very short story, I will have a lot to say about it. So we're going to begin reading tonight. If you'd stand with me please to honor God's word. We're looking at Revelation chapter 11 and we'll start reading at verse number 3. And I will give power under my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. These are two olive trees and two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. These have power to shut heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and have power over waters to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified." And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. 
And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry and shall send gifts one to another because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt on the earth. And after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell upon them which saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies beheld them. And the same hour was there a great earthquake, and the tenth part of the city fell, and in the earthquake were slain of men seven thousand, and the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past, and behold, the third woe cometh quickly. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you again, and we are thankful for those who have come to hear your word tonight. And we just praise you, Lord, for the great God that you are, and as we Look forward to these times that are coming in the future. Again, we're so thankful as the children of God that we won't personally have to witness these things on earth, but we'll be uh, taken to be with you, Lord, so we won't have to experience all these calamities and tribulations that come upon the earth. Bless in this time as we study your word tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. First thing that strikes me as I read this passage is just how different that these two preachers are from anybody that we've ever seen before. The second thing that strikes me is, where have we seen in our time any preachers that are like these? And I believe that the numbers of good preachers, good Bible expositors, men who take the Word of God and speak the truth, that are unafraid to speak the truth, who stand on the Word of God without wavering, I am very much afraid that the number is dwindling very quickly. Uh, Even without thinking about other denominations and how uh, so many of them have shamefully departed from the truth, I'm really afraid for our Baptist churches because in seminaries and in colleges today, uh, they're training preachers to come out of those telling stories and being consummate illustrators and topical preachers and aren't really expositors of the word. And then in addition to that, the theology of most Baptist churches today is decidedly Arminian in their drift, and so they really don't hold to the same uh, doctrinal foundations that our Baptist forefathers preached and stood upon. Now, the gospel today is in danger because it's been changed from a gospel of a powerful sovereign that must... Uh, draw people to salvation. It's changed from one that teaches repentance from sin and reception of Jesus Christ as Lord as well as the Savior. It's changed from one that counts the high cost of following Christ and says that there are demands that are made upon us. That gospel has been changed today to one of decisional regeneration and one of easy believism. And what it does, it really focuses on man than it do, more than it does on God. And I suppose that one of the really most remarkable things that I have seen in print, something that I've read in in just recently, was that one of the largest fundamental Baptist churches in America, in fact, this is the church that claims that they have the largest Sunday school in America, one of the stipulations that they have for choosing a pastor for the church And uh, this is one of the criteria. It's number three on their list, and I'm quoting from it. It says, do not choose a Bible expositor, topical only. Now, can you imagine that it would be bad to choose a pastor who teaches the Bible chapter by chapter and verse by verse and then explains that meaning? Can you imagine that it's bad to have a pastor in a church that 
that delivers the Word of God in its context, taking the Word exactly as it is here, and then explaining what the author's original intent was when he wrote. Now, do you see the problem that we're facing? There is no sound doctrine. There is really no faithfulness to the text of God's Word. There is no gospel that is so demanding that it says there must be a changed life, and that life of one who has received Christ as Savior will not fail to give evidence of regeneration. Now, you see what's happening in the pulpit? And so thus we have preaching today that's storytelling. Maybe, maybe you're not. There's a scripture that's sprinkled in here or there. And then if someone does happen to get saved under that kind of preaching, they're very anemic Christians. They're skin and bones Christians. And that's because they've never really been given anything that helps their understanding of God's word. And the contrast between a soul-sustaining gospel and a very weak, anemic gospel couldn't be more vivid than what we find right here with these two potent preachers that are in Revelation. I mean, can you imagine that there would be anyone who believes in that time who had come to Christ because they've heard some kind of a fairy tale illustration and they haven't heard something about taking up the cross and following Christ, the cross as an instrument of death. Now, believers in the time that we're talking about here are immediately placed in the gun sights of the Antichrist and his followers. So we're not talking here about pretend Christians. We're not talking about just a simple little pray-the-prayer type of Christian. These are repentant, dedicated, consecrated, believing, faithful followers. And that's because the lives of these people in those days will be literally one breath at a time. Now, the amazing thing about the gospel that these men preach is that it's the same of the gospel, the same gospel of Christ that's preached in the New Testament. That, that hasn't changed. Now, the days that we're living now, the gospel has been changed. And if there's any credit at all that's given to God, it's given in the context of, of human ability just to see facts and to evaluate facts and simply to make good decisions based upon the facts. And so there's really no credit that's given to God and to the Holy Spirit, who is the one who regenerates the heart, illuminates the mind, changes the will, draws the sinner convincingly to Christ and I will say infallibly to Christ. And so here we see there is the same gospel that's preached because this, folks, is the only gospel that will save. There's only one way that you get to heaven. The Bible says that's a very narrow way, and the way you get there has always been the same. Now, the way that these preachers preach, though they are preaching the same gospel, yet the presentation of that gospel is very different. And we'll see that as we go on. We won't get into that part of it tonight. But these men are preaching in a very different time, and so they treat unbelievers in a very different way. And if you'll notice the text there, read it again, and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. They treat unbelievers in a different way. But let's look here tonight, and we want to see what the Scripture says about these men. Uh, I don't really have very much for you to fill out on your listening sheet tonight, uh, but I do believe that there is great value in taking notes And one of the reasons that we put out a listening sheet is so you can make your own notes and then you can refer back to that and you'll have some commentary for future reference. So the mighty angel that is in chapter 10 begins to relate to John this story of these two preachers. Now, let's look first of all at their description. In verse number 3 it says, And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. I will give power 
under my two witnesses. You might want to underline two witnesses because that is significant. There are two witnesses that are required to establish confirmation of testimony. When you look back into the Old Testament and also when you read the New Testament, you find this over and over again that in order to establish a testimony, there have to be at least two witnesses. Let me give you two scriptures, one from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament. Uh, From the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy, uh, in a death sentence, here's what the Word of God says. At the mouth of two witnesses or three witnesses shall he that is worthy of death be put to death. But at the mouth of one witness shall he not be put to death. Then in the New Testament, when we learn about church discipline in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus says that it would take at least two witnesses to establish a case against an erring brother. Uh, Jesus says, but if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. So it is significant that there are two witnesses that are sent. It's the law of God that underlies that confirmation uh, that there must be two witnesses. And it's not coincidental, I don't think, that the Old Testament uh, tells us about two witnesses, and we find two here, because this transpires in the city of Jerusalem just prior to when Israel is reinstituted or reestablished into the Millennial Kingdom. Now, I want you to notice first about these men that they are messengers. Now, the speaker here is most likely Christ, and he says, I will give power under my two witnesses. Now, there are many people who want to allegorize the entire book of Revelation, and so they say, well, these aren't really two men. These are just symbolic of something. And so there are those who say that, well, perhaps they're symbolic of the law and the gospel. Uh, Perhaps these two witnesses represent Israel and the church. I think it's just wildly fanciful that you could look here and read about deaths and read about read the resurrection of these men, read about their actions, read about the power, and then not come to the conclusion that what the Bible is speaking of is actually two literal witnesses. The word for witness in the original language always refers to men. It's never used in a symbolic way. And so these are actually real men who've given, been given the authority of Christ to be his messengers. And we see here there's a definite time period established for their preaching. They shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days. Look at that word prophesy. That that word means to preach. Usually when you see that word in the New Testament, it primarily means to preach. I know there are many charismatics that like to uh, emphasize the word prophesy, and, and they try to extract from that some kind of ability today that they're able to uh, give some kind of extra-biblical revelations. Now, the truth of the matter is, there is no such thing as a modern-day prophet. There aren't any prophets like you find in the Old Testament. There aren't any people today that are given any word that is not written in the Bible, any revelations for us today. Everything that we need to know is written in the Word of God, and we go to that, we depend upon that, and if anybody comes to you and tells you that they are a prophet or they have some extra-biblical revelation that nobody else has ever had before, it might be a bad pizza dream, but it didn't come from God. So there is no such thing as a prophet in that sense today. Now, this is talking about preachers, and this is the way the word is used, especially when Paul and others in the New Testament use that word. There aren't any new revelations, and there haven't been for some 2,000 years. So here, he says, my witnesses are going to prophesy. These are witnesses of the gospel of Christ. 
They have a time for their preaching. It's 1,203 score days. Add all that up and you get three and a half years. And if you go back to verse number two, you find that it's the very same time period there, 42 months. And so we see then that the time of their preaching coincides with the very same amount of time that the Gentiles tread Jerusalem, the holy city of God, under their feet. So what we're talking about here is the period of the Great Tribulation. And as we explained last week, that's the last half of these seven years. And this is when the Antichrist is at the zenith of his power. What he's done, he's broken the peace that was established with the Jewish people. He takes over the temple. He defiles the temple of God. He sets himself up as the ruler there in Jerusalem. He makes himself God. But during this whole time, that the Antichrist is ruling the world, here are these two preachers that are standing out there in the streets of Jerusalem and they continue to preach the word of God over and over and over again. They are a thorn in the side to the Antichrist. And as we see here, he's not able to do anything about it until God has removed his hand and allows these men to be killed. And so during this whole time, these men are preaching. They're preaching the gospel and they're just like that broken record of judgment. Now, verse number 3 says that they are clothed in sackcloth. Now, sackcloth is clothing of suffering. It's clothing of grief and humility. Whenever something terrible would happen, people would wear sackcloth. And what that is is a rough burlap type of clothing. It's very coarse. Anybody know what a gunny sack is? Most of you know what a gunny sack is? Well, that's pretty much what we're talking about here, a Gunny sack is a big sack that's made out of burlap, and usually what you do with that, they put grain or potatoes or something like that in it. I I remember when I was a a child, and my dad was pastoring this little Baptist church up in the hills of Kentucky, that sometimes the people there were really, really poor, and what they would do is they would take an old gunny sack and they'd make clothes out of it. Anybody here old enough to have lived during the time of the Depression? Nobody? Nobody? Oh, there's one. Uh, yes, June, there's John. And our other folks are, are away tonight, and they would, they would probably know about this. But uh, if you were old enough to have lived during the Depression, you know that sometimes little girls would have dresses that were made out of gunny sacks. And they wore those because they really couldn't afford to wear anything else. But that was a very rough and uncomfortable type of clothing. And so in the Bible times, they would take that burlap type of material. It was too coarse to be used for normal clothing. And during times of mourning and grief, they would put on this sackcloth and they would mourn. Several times we find that in the Old Testament. One of those times was when David sinned in numbering the people of Israel. And when he did that, there were 70,000 people that died because God sent a plague. And so when David repented of his sin, he cried out to God and he sat in sackcloth. He put on these old rough clothes because he was mourning about that. And in this case, there there was an angel of God that God had sent to destroy the entire city of Jerusalem. But because David repented, God stayed the hand of the angel. And so here we see that there are these two messengers and they put on this sackcloth and they demonstrate here that there's great cause for mourning. 
And the reason that they're mourning is because the temple of God has been taken over by the Antichrist. The holy city of Jerusalem is being tread down by the Gentiles. There's great destruction that God has promised that is coming. They've seen all of these things that have happened during the tribulation period, what's happened under the trumpet judgments, and they begin to mourn because of what God is about to do. Now, notice also that the messengers are described a little bit further in verse number 4. It says, These are two olive trees and two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. Now, next week we're going to get into a discussion of who these two witnesses might be. But I want you to notice this, this peculiar description because this gives us the Old Testament connection. And we'll be able to use this uh, during the discussion as we talk about who these men might be. But I want you to turn now, if you would, <clears throat> to the Old Testament book of Zechariah. And Zechariah is easy for you to find. It's next to the last book in the Old Testament. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, find Malachi, back up one book, and you'll find the book of Zechariah. Now, we look at, want to look at uh, chapter number 4. I don't have time to get into all that's taking place here, but this is during the time of the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem which was after the Babylonian captivity. And there are two prominent people that stand out in, this, in these chapters. Uh, one is Zerubbabel. He was the man who was commissioned by God to rebuild the temple. And the other person is Joshua, who was the high priest at the time uh, in Israel. And so these were two very godly men. They were two witnesses that God had raised up. And these men are typical of the two witnesses that we find in Revelation. And uh, in chapter 11, we have that reference there to olive trees and candlesticks. And we find this in the book of Zechariah. Now, before we get into chapter 4, Zechariah 3 tells how that uh, God was going to forgive Israel and how he would restore the priesthood. And so Joshua, the high priest, is prominent there. And there's a message that's been given to Zechariah by an angel of God. Then you come to chapter 4. And the angel talks about Zerubbabel. It's the man who's going to rebuild the temple. And we have some information here about candlesticks and olive trees. So let's begin reading uh, verse number 1 in Zechariah 4. And the angel that talked with me came again and waked me as a man that is wakened out of his sleep and said unto me, What seest thou? And I said, I have looked and behold a candlestick all of gold with a bowl upon the top of it and his seven lamps thereon and seven pipes to the seven lamps which are upon the top thereof, and two olive trees by it, one upon the right side of the bowl, and the other upon the left side thereof. Now let me explain to you just a little bit here before we go on. This angel is speaking to Zechariah, and in the vision, Zechariah sees a golden candlestick. That candlestick is the very same piece of furniture that was in the tabernacle, originally put into the tabernacle, and what it was was really a lampstand that had seven lights on it. Now, most of you have seen this. Uh, if you've ever seen, you know what a Jewish menorah is. Uh, it has the, it's the lampstand with the lights on it. And you see that around Christmas time or Hanukkah time for the Jews. I remember a few years ago we were in uh, San Francisco and they had a huge lighting of a menorah there. And they went through a whole ceremony as they lighted that. Now I have a couple of slides for you that we used while we were studying the tabernacle and this first one is what Zacharias sees. He sees this lampstand, a golden candlestick that has seven lights on it. 
And there are pipes that run down to each of the seven little bowls on the lampstand. And those little bowls are what holds the oil for the fuel that, that burns the lamp. And then in the next slide, what we see is the priest that's pouring in the oil for the lamps to burn. Now, the difference in this picture and what Zacharias sees in his vision is that there are two olive trees that are standing by this candlestick. And from these two olive trees, there is a system of pipes that runs down and runs to each of those little bowls, and oil runs through those little bowls, then runs to these... Uh, the oil comes down and fills those branches so that there's this constant flow of oil there all the time. The lamps are kept burning. They're burning, they're burning because the oil is in constant supply. Now let's go down to verse number 4 in Zechariah. It says, So I answered and spake to the angel that talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel that talked with me answered and said unto me, Knowest thou not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Now here you have just a marvelous symbolism. In the Old Testament, this oil was put into the lamp as fuel for the fire. In the tabernacle worship, that oil represented the Holy Spirit. I wish I had time just to preach an entire message on the candlestick and about the oil. And there's just so many beautiful pictures that are found in this. Uh, for instance, this candlestick that was put into the tabernacle was made by artisans who took a piece of gold and they beat it into perfect shape to make this candlestick. And that beating of the candlestick was symbolic that Jesus would be beaten and bruised and put upon a cross. In the tabernacle, also, there, there were no windows, and so there wasn't any light that came in. The only light that was there was the light from this candlestick. And what that symbolizes is that the only way that we can walk is in the light of the Holy Spirit. If a person wants to walk in natural light, he can go outside of the tabernacle. But if you're on the inside of the tabernacle, which is symbolic of being inside with Christ, then the only way that you can walk is by the light of the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus is represented by that candlestick, and the only way that Christ is revealed is when the Holy Spirit speaks of him. Now, there are so many great preaching points in that, it's almost possible to pass over it, but uh, we have to do that to to carry on here. So in verse number 6, that angel says, Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. And let me just make a quick note for you there, too. Lord of hosts, that's Martin Luther's Lord Sabaoth, in that great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Lord of hosts, Lord Sabaoth. And so he says, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. And so if there is anything to be done, it has to be done in the power of the Holy Spirit. And in our text verses back over in Revelation chapter 11, it's the power of the Holy Spirit that rests upon these two witnesses. Anything that's done in our power, any preaching that's done in our abilities, that's useless. It takes the Holy Spirit to do God's work. And that just reminds us of the great uh, work of the Holy Spirit in salvation. It's not powers of persuasion that lead people to Christ. I don't beg and plead at the invitation time, and I don't spend time away from the Word of God telling all kinds of tear-jerking stories and try to get people to walk down the aisle. 
I believe that a true conversion comes at the hands of the Holy Spirit speaking uh, or using the, the word that's been preached, the word of God preached, and the Holy Spirit takes that and he uses it to convert the sinner. And if he doesn't do that, no matter how long I preach and no matter how much persuasion that I can muster up and how many arguments that I can make, it will all be useless because only the Holy Spirit has the power to change a person's heart and cause him to believe in Christ. And so if the Holy Spirit doesn't do that, nothing that I can do will do it. Now go back here to Zechariah. We skip down to verse number 11 now. And it says, Then answered I and said unto him, What are these two olive trees upon the right side of the candlestick and upon the left side thereof? And I answered again and said unto him, What be these two olive branches which through the two golden pipes empty the golden oil out of themselves? And he answered me and said, Knowest thou not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, These are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Now, verses 11 and 12 tell us that Zechariah was really anxious to find out what this is all about. So he asks a question, then he repeats that question. What are these two olive trees? And the answer that comes back to him is a very powerful one. It says, these are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Now, here is one of those times in Scripture where a passage has a double fulfillment. There's a near fulfillment to this prophecy, and there's also a far fulfillment. Now, for Zechariah, Zechariah will see the near fulfillment. These olive trees are Joshua the high priest. He represents the restoration of the priesthood in Israel. And the other tree is representative of Zerubbabel. He's the one that God commissioned to rebuild the temple. And so what Zechariah sees is the near fulfillment. But there's also a far fulfillment. And this one, no one actually knew until we come to the book of Revelation in the New Testament. And so this angel that appears to Zechariah could indeed be the very same one that appears to uh, John in the book of Revelation. And he says, now here is what this is all about. This is what that Old Testament prophecy is about. God is going to raise up two powerful witnesses during this time of tribulation and the Spirit of God is going to rest upon them and they will prophesy in the streets of Jerusalem. They will preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, like two great olive trees, these men are going to have the anointing oil of the Holy Spirit to preach the word. It'll be two spectacular people like the world has never seen before. So they're messengers of God. Now we have one more descriptive word that I want to give you before we close the message tonight. And that is they are martyrs. They are martyrs. The word witness is the same word from which we get martyr. Back in chapter 2 in Revelation, there is a man that's mentioned there that we really don't know anything about at all except that the Bible says that he was a martyr. Jesus was speaking to the church at Smyrna, and he says in Revelation chapter 2, I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is, and thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith, even in those days where an Antipas was my faithful martyr who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. In Acts chapter 22, we have a story where Paul is relating his testimony, and he just tells this woeful story about how that he was standing right there when Stephen was stoned. And here's what Paul says in Acts 22.20. And when the blood of thy martyr Stephen was shed, 
I also was standing by and consenting unto his death and kept the raiment of them that slew him. Now, the word martyr there is exactly the same word as witness that we find in Revelation chapter 11. And so the Bible is telling us that these men are going to be martyred for their witness. Now, I think this is kind of an interesting thing, too, because it was so common for Christians to be put to death in the first century that if you were a witness for Christ, there was a really good chance that you would be killed. If you took your stand... And if you spoke out against moral decadence, and if you pointed out men's sins, if you stood up for Christ and you told people that if they did not trust in Christ, they would die and they would go to hell, you would stand a very good chance of being killed. You could just figure it out. You're going to die. And so what they did was they called them witnesses. And it came from the, comes from the very same word as martyr. And so witnessing for Christ meant the same as becoming a martyr for him. So witness is death. Death is a witness. Now, what I'd like to do is see uh, some of the preachers today who would walk up to these Christians that we're talking about now or first-century Christians and say to them, you know how I preach the gospel? I really don't think that Jesus made any demands for discipleship in the gospel. And did you know that a few years ago that very statement was made by the editor of the Sword of the Lord uh, paper? He claims to be a fundamentalist who, who, who stood for fundamentalism, and yet he made that statement. There are no demands for discipleship in the gospel. I wonder if he'd sit down with Antipas in Smyrna, and he would say to him that Jesus said that being a Christian doesn't mean that you actually have to follow him. It just means that you have to pray this little prayer and If you do that, then you have a surefire guarantee you're going to heaven no matter what happens. Would he say, well, Jesus didn't really say that you have to be, he has to be your Lord. He only has to be your Savior. You just need to repent of your unbelief. Not of all of your sins. All you need to really do is repent of your unbelief. And it doesn't matter if he's the Lord of your life. He just needs to be your Savior. And so what else that you might do after you claim to be saved? You're still a bona fide child of God. I doubt very seriously if that kind of witness would fly with Antipas or these two preachers that we find in Revelation. For sure, it's not going to square with Peter, and it won't square with Paul or James, because to them, witness equals martyr. Being a Christian, to them, was synonymous with death. And nobody who doesn't have Jesus as their Lord is ever going to die for him. Here's what Jesus said in Luke chapter 14. If any man come after me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, friend, when Jesus says there, you cannot be his disciple, that is the same thing as saying, you cannot be in my kingdom. But didn't he also say that those who are born again would see the kingdom? And so now you've got to figure out how to square these statements with you can be saved, but that doesn't mean that Christ has to be your Lord. I'll try to make that fit in with what the pastor of Jerusalem, who was James, he was witnessed, or regular, he was martyred, he was killed for the preaching of the gospel. Now what James said, if you remember in his epistle, He said that your faith is going to show up in your works. And if it doesn't, you have a dead faith, a.k.a. no saving faith. And so a real faith in Jesus Christ is always going to produce 
these works of righteousness that show that Jesus Christ is, in fact, our Lord and our Savior. Now, of course, I'm not saying, again, that anyone is saved by works, but I am saying that anyone who is saved will have works. They will demonstrate that. So these two witnesses, they are very serious about following Christ. Preaching makes them martyrs for Christ. Now, next week, we're going to come back to this, and we're going to talk about these two powerful preachers, just two potent preachers, that preached the gospel of Christ. And they were real men. They were real men. And I say that in more ways than one. Real men. They were real witnesses in many more ways than one. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word. And we thank you, Lord, for the testimony of people who have stood faithful to you. As we preach this morning, we're persecuted for righteousness' sake. And a person who is persecuted in that way has proved that he is a genuine Christian. There's a trial of faith that comes that bears out whether our faith is genuine, whether it's real, whether it's going to stand the test. And Lord, I just pray that every person here tonight knows you as Savior and they do have a testimony that says that they do in fact know you. They live that testimony. And Lord, by their testimony, they point others to the Lord Jesus Christ. I ask you, Lord, to bless in this time of invitation. Strengthen us. In the word that we've heard tonight, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.